Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. All right, friends. Welcome back to the show. Today we're... What are you laughing about, Richard? You. Why? Why are you laughing? You've heard I find this. you amusing. What's, what's amusing about that introduction, Richard? You've heard it. I don't know. It still strikes me as funny that we're doing this. What's funny about it, Richard? <laughs> Nothing. How about you do the introduction then? Well, how does the introduction go? It goes, you just do get ready you... for some awesome, or that's Jonathan's? That's, that's already happened. Oh, okay. We introduce right. our guests. I'm here with uh, the Zahn family and l- you. Okay, so now I'm a guest. <laughs> okay, so we have BZ returning. You've been on a dozen yep. times, yeah. or half a dozen. Right. But Perry is here as well. And Perry's here too. She, you can just say hi. You don't have to participate. Just say hi. Hi. Yes. That's good. Well, thank you. So, but we're in Malibu. BZ we are. comes to the Church of Christ. Is he the only one that calls you BZ, or do other people no, call No, no. My friends call me BZ. That's, That's why you call him Brian. It's, perfect. That's <laughs> it's perfectly legit. <laughs> Maybe. You know, I'm here. With, are, are you Richard, or are you Beck? Richard. Okay. Does he call, do you call me back? I don't think I'm yeah. Just, yeah. Yeah, I he did. So I thought I thought maybe that was the No, that's just a correct thing. nomenclature. No, Richard. You know, Richard, we've been together twice and both times we were like 50 feet from the ocean. We were. Yeah. yeah. Last time we were in the Channel Islands. Which, together. Which ocean seems better? This is the Pacific. It's pacified. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't feel like it's going to kill you at any moment. <laughs> I mean, we, yeah, we were in on Jersey Island and I thought I think Jersey is just no, it's beautiful. Gorgeous. Is that like Absolutely beautiful. That's nothing that's, that's like the new it. Jersey. This is the yeah. old Jersey, the original Jersey. But yeah, that was it's a beautiful island. I was I texted about how we got to all sit in that yeah. You know, old fisherman's chapel. Yeah, like, like when we say old, we mean like a thousand years yeah. old. <laughs> and sang Teze hymns in that right. chapel. I just it was just beautiful. So it was a good time. That's good. Malibu's very different from that. BZ, Beck is like the only person who just doesn't like Malibu. You just called him Beck. His name's Richard. You're, I thought we'd establish that, but go ahead. You can call him whatever you want. Yeah. I don't realize that you, like, you have to micromanage. <laughs> I, I feel like there's free will with God and with people. I guess with you, you like the micromanaging. Um, you become what you worship, anyway. Um, whatever we'd like to refer to Dr. Richard Beck III, uh, he doesn't like Malibu, like, and you seem like you're kind of like the brooding type that you want like a little bit more sadness yourself. Like, if if someone was like just crying, maybe on the street. Yeah, like, I mean, if you ask me, I was thinking about it. You have the Atlantic Ocean, the cold gray sea, and the Pacific Ocean. You know, it's blue and it's 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 passive and it's. But I like the Atlantic. I like the darkness. I like the danger. I like. Mm-hmm. I mean, who, who doesn't like, you know, the Pacific and Malibu, but it's not my cup of tea. This is what happens when you have a room with two sevens, and then you have two fives with four wings. I'm a four with a five wing, oh, but okay. you know, close enough. That's, it's the same in my opinion. <clears throat> I talked to one of my friends, I got a FaceTime from one of my friends who's in Belfast, and he is... He's a five with the four wing. And he's like, it's, it's too sunny here. I, yeah. I was like, yeah. Yeah, that's exactly. Okay, I, so here I have one angle for the podcast. I have something. I've studied both of you two and your spiritual journey, how you've turned water to wine, dare I say. And I find that's the title of one of his books, Richard, in case you didn't get that. There is a common thread that I see in your spiritual journeys 
And I was just going to say it, but I want to see if you guys can guess it. Like, you guys have spent just a little bit of time together. And I see one, there's many, but like one specific major thread that I found in both of your spiritual trajectory, where you started to where you, where you are right now. Let's, let's put this oh, thinking hats on. I don't know. On. You're pretty good at this, Luke, though. I remember on one podcast, um, well, we were talking about a critical review of sinners in the hands of a loving God. And, and I said, well, there was only three things I didn't like about it. And you said, let me guess. And you, named, you nailed all three of them. I don't remember what they were, but you got it. Okay, so you trust what I'm going to get yeah, you here. Yeah, so I don't know. Maybe, does it have to do with, I need, a, I need a hint. Does it have to do with how we read the Bible? Well, I'm not sure if Richard reads the Bible. I'm not <laughs> Wait a second. <laughs> I blog a lot about the Bible. Yeah. Okay, here's uh, yeah. a clue. Here's a clue. I think, this is what I would say. Okay. I would say that both of us have gone through a season of kind of deconstruction. Yeah. yeah. And now we're very keen on... A reconstructing, mm-hmm. putting the pieces back together in yes. a very positive way. Okay, so what has helped you reconstruct your faith? What are the things, the practices that have got you there? You know, I never use the word deconstruction. I mean, I know it resonates with people. Hold on, hold on, hold on. And not, it, well, hold on. What's your sermon series in May? I know. I, I was just going to say, but I am. <laughs> but I, well, I'm, actually, the sermon series is called "Dark Nights and New Dawns." That I'm going to start this Sunday. Great title. But I, but I use the word deconstruction to talk about okay. what it's like. But to me, it's a bit violent. But for some people, it, I, I suppose it was that way. It was like the implosion of a parking garage or something. But. Uh, I kind of think, you know, I want to be more delicate. And what's, and if, and if anything has helped me just, you know, stay at it is it's the local church and the fact that I, I went through, if you want to say deconstruction, I went through my deconstruction and all of that as a pastor, mm-hmm. staying a pastor in the same church. Yeah. And that, that, had a, that had the effect of keeping me honest. I couldn't just become bitter and a cynic and yeah. hate everything and because that doesn't work on sunday morning when you're the pastor uh anyway that's a thought yeah i think for me i mean i've told some of this story in my books but worshiping in with marginalized communities mm-hmm. that i discovered i tell the story in reviving old scratch that deconstruction doesn't work you know on the on the margins uh faith is mm-hmm. is vital and real and important and sustaining and so to go in there with kind of kind of critical analytical questions it, it does it's it's ill suited and it's elitist too and so i've learned to check right. a lot of that deconstructing impulses so in the bible study out at the prison and so on and so forth i i go out there and i allow the faith of the the men in white they wear all white out there the inmates do and let their faith vibrant faith right um, educate me. So I've just learned to put my edu- academic grid to the side. I told Perry at lunch that, you know, I'm all thinking about this new series I'm going to start. And I said, here's the tricky thing, though, in the context of a local church. Uh, I want to help people that are going through deconstruction. I think I can. I think I'm probably even good at that. But in doing it in the context of a local church, I don't want to throw people into a crisis of faith mm-hmm. who they're not going through that. See, if people identif- self-identify, oh, I- I'm going through deconstruction, I'm, I'm struggling with my faith, I- I'm not sure how to answer these questions anymore, I think I, need- I, think I can help them. But if-, but if people are at some place in their journey where everything's just fine, I don't want to upset them. Yeah, okay, but you have to- how do you balance that? Because for some who are in that sort of 
let's use the deconstruction language, albeit under protest from you. But mm -hmm. if they're in deconstruction, they need to have verbalized probably their feelings and their experiences to normalize them and say, this is part of the experience many people have. But in normalizing that for them, it can cause that sort of uh, like spiritual crisis for others yeah. who haven't gone there. How do you balance that? I, I don't know how you do it. Yeah. I mean, you feel it. it it's nuanced. But here's what I think. Um, there's a million podcasts out there talking about deconstruction. Uh, I know that a lot of people are going to listen to my sermons online, you know. I know they will. And I know it'll, it'll sound different to them because they're going to hear somebody talking about it in the context of a local church. Yep. Not just uh, appealing to a self-identifying audience out there in the internet, but in, in the life of an actual, living, vibrant congregation. And so I think, I think you'll sense more tenderness, being a bit careful, trying to keep the cynicism at bay, but still honestly dealing with these issues. Yeah. No, and I think the local church, that would be another reason why I've reconstructed. Um, How's just, that? Well, again, because you're, it's, 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 you're living with and caring for and sharing burdens with real-life people who have very different faith experiences than you. And so, because I, I was a Bible teacher for an adult Bible class at our church, and, and for a season, that, that was a really deconstructing class. I think it served a purpose at the time when people were attracted to the class and because they were going through a season of deconstruction. But after a couple of years of that, it just, it wasn't going anywhere. It was just, we just kind of ended it in this kind of critical negativity all the time. And there was a certain kind of self-indulgent, you know, patting ourselves on the back that we've gotten to this, you know, point and other people hadn't really, you know, weren't, weren't asking the hardest, deepest questions that we were. But after a while, I, I felt like a diet of, Ashes was not going to be a sustainable thing, so I began. I began worrying about kind of liberal progressive Christianity that was doing a lot of deconstruction. Whether or not that was for a season, okay, but it wasn't sustainable over the long haul, and it also did. It's seem like all, you can't deconstruct forever. Yeah, or, right. or eventually you run out. You, there's nothing left. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's I, and so G. And also, if you're passionate about Jesus, he didn't seem. I mean, so where's peace and joy? Like what? Where are those things that are going to come out of the faith experience? And so I began missing that. Joy. Yeah, I began missing joy. That's a good thing. I found, and I think people who've listened to the podcast for a long time, probably can notice that the guests that I'm having and the conversations that I'm most interested in these days are not the same ones I had four years ago when I started this. I found myself at the beginning, it was more of a, hey, my faith isn't making sense. I, I've got to find people who can help me put this back together, which means I need people to validate the questions that I'm asking. And now I'm at a different stage where those questions aren't the ones that are most important to me. But if you just stay in those questions and you stay there, you get this elitist thing and you don't move forward. Um, okay, so let me go back to my initial idea. The thing that you guys have in common. It's a hint. If you look at Richard's arms, you can kind of see a Church of Christ. Well, it's not tattoos. He's got tattoos. I don't. I'm kind of a rebel, so I don't get any <laughs> tattoos. But if you look beyond the, that there is a tattoo and what the tattoo is, and even the thing on his other arm, not many people growing up in the Church of Christ have prayer oh. ropes. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah, I, I have a pair. I, I, didn't, I didn't wear it today, but I have one back in my hotel room. Yeah. Now, someone in the word of, of I always forget, 
word of what is the the tradition that you grew up? <laughs> well, I no, I, I'm from the Jesus movement, but that kind of led me to the charismatic movement. That yeah. kind of led me into the word of faith movement. That word, if that's what I was trying yeah. to get into. If you're asking me if Kenneth Copeland uses a prayer rope, probably not. I have a friend who used to work for Kenneth Copeland. I'm not even joking right now, and he doesn't have a prayer rope. My friend who, <laughs> who worked at KCM Ministries, but yeah. Church of Christ people don't have prayer ropes, nor do they have tattoos if they're God-fearing Christians. <laughs> but th- those are signs of things that both of you have leaned into ancient traditions. Okay. Mm-hmm. Oh, church- yeah. Well, that's, yeah, that's a big deal with me. And it's a big deal with you, Richard. If you walk into Richard's office, it looks like a mixture of like a, um, like the Cracker Barrel and like a, a Catholic church or something. <laughs> like it's, it's like a Catholic Cracker Barrel. That's what it is. Like, <laughs> I'm about to walk out. Uh, no. Yeah, no. A Catholic Cracker Barrel? Yeah, like that's a good thing. I like Cracker Barrel, don't you? <laughs> My study's got about, I don't know, 12 or 13 Orthodox icons. Yeah, we do. I do. I have lots and, of icons. Uh, they're statues. all kind of lined up in this one area of my study. Yeah, and where it's going. And Brian Houston. <laughs> Brian Houston from Hillsong was yeah. in my study, and he, he looked at it, and then he looked at me, and he said, I see you're a very religious man. <laughs> 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 That's hilarious. <laughs> and I said, I am. Yeah. Yes, I am. As a so matter of fact. So did you get Brian to start uh, bringing those down to Sydney? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I like Brian. I don't think, you know, he's into orthodox icons as much as I am, but he's a cool guy. Yeah. Well, I just came from a session where I was talking about some of this and, and how in a kind of a disenchanted skeptical age, how we have to move the... The typically the evangel the evangelistic or apologetic move is often to try to focus on beliefs, and so mm-hmm. beliefs are hard for people, and so we got to force people to believe things they find hard to believe, and that's just a really hard opening move. And I was trying to talk about how, but if we move people down to kind of a more of a mystical, experiential texture, then we can evoke feelings and longings and an ache for the sacred, and then beliefs come later, but the experiences come first. And mm-hmm. so I was talking about, well, how do you do that? Like, how do you evoke? In, in the day-to-day life that and i said with this you know what catholics call sacramentals the icons and the uh, prayer beads and things like that you populate your world with those things so you're moving through a sacred landscape and so i said i asked them i said think about your office space is it just a functional corporate space in capitalistic america or have you populated it are you moving through a sacred space that you've created for yourself and those can look different, and we're attracted to kind of the Orthodox or the Catholic sensibilities, but there's other ways to create those spaces. But you need those tangible, physical things to kind of keep you reminded and oriented to, to the sacred. There's the line that's been attributed to, oh, I forgot to say his name, but it's about shipbuilding. And this guy, Antoine something or whatever, uh, said, when you're trying to teach someone how to build ships, you don't like talk to them about lumber and the length of a sail. You, you try to instill in them the majesty of the ocean. And you create that awe and wonder, and then everything else kind of falls behind that. And I think that's kind of like what you're talking about is let's create the awe and the wonder, and then let's, let's build the beliefs around that. Which, don't you think that's counterintuitive to how we've often done, like Christianity is like, here, you have to believe these things, and eventually you might have some experience. Yeah, I, I think part of what's going on is we are still coming to terms with what it means to live in a secular age. And it is a phenomenon. I mean, this is something entirely new. I don't, know, I don't know when you date the triumph of secularism in the West, but somewhere along the way it did. Mm-hmm. I know this. I know I am a secularist. 
I don't want to be. How would you define what a secular is? Well, that's what I'm, that's my point. I think I don't know if it's a definition, but at the heart of secularism is the belief that there is nothing inherently sacred, hmm. and that's what I want to push against. I want to say no. I believe I'll use a big word here. I believe in a sacramental ontology. I believe in in sacredness within being. Now, I mean, you you can you can move it all the way to the end, and you can begin to argue that all of being is sacred. Yeah. But but I don't think you can make that big leap. I think you start with, uh, okay, this is going to this will be this is a sacred place. Again, Richard and I were at, in this. Um, Fisherman's Chapel, we call it, whatever it is, there on the uh, island of Jersey in the Channel Sea, and and and, and singing Teze hymns by led by a, I don't know what order he belonged to, a French. He's a French mystic, is French what he mystic was. Catholic, <laughs> teaching us yeah. to sing Teze. And you, I mean, we could have done that in the uh, conference room of a Hampton Inn. But it wouldn't have been the same. No, it wouldn't would have been the same. No, and so so I recognize that there are places that have become sacred because of how they've been revered, how they've been dedicated, how they have been occupied, and I'm drawn to that as as sort of a tonic for my soul in this secular age where. Well, since we're just a few miles from Bob Dylan's house, I'm going to have to drop the Dylan line here. Disillusioned words like bullets bark as human gods aim for their mark. Make everything from toy guns that spark to flesh-colored Christ that glow in the dark. It's easy to see without looking too far that not much is really sacred. And we're trying to find the sacred. Yeah. I, I was also talking about in this session back on campus that it, I think one of the things that's happened to Protestantism is that we've reduced Christianity to kind of morality and politics. And, you know, that being a Christian is being a you know, good, kind of, good person, a Christ-like person, and we also care about social justice. We care about making the world more just. And, and the trouble with that is, is that, particularly with millennials, if, if Christianity is, you know, good people involved in good, act, good justice activities— then you kind of disenchant Christianity because the next question that somebody's going to ask you is like, but, you know, I'm a, do you have to be a Christian to be a good person? Mm-hmm. Or can't non-Christians dig wells in Africa just as effectively as Christians? And so, and so if you lose the sacred aspect of Christianity. If somebody says to me, do you have to be a Christian to be a good person? I reply, I don't know. I don't know about you. I know I have to be a yeah. Christian to be mm-hmm. a good person. Right. Um, I remember I was hiking one time up high in the, it was, a, it was a winter hike in the Rockies, and I was a little bit uncertain about the route, and I came upon another hiker, the only other person out there, and I was kind of glad to see somebody. And so we started hiking together, and we'd hiked for maybe an hour mostly just talking about the mountains and things like that. And at one point he asked me, he said, what do you do? You know, that terrible question. And uh, What do you usually say to that question? I, you know, I, I usually tell the truth. <laughs> Sometimes I'll say I'm a writer, but I always feel guilty if I do that. I've started doing that. And I feel guilty when I do that. So I said, I'm a pastor, and dang it, he turned on me. He just got mean, and he, he was a former Christian, um, angry, and he said, well, I'll tell you what you Christians 
should do. I said, well, please, please tell us, tell me what <laughs> we Christians should do. He said, you should just do good works. You should just do good works. You shouldn't worship Jesus. I said, well, hold on a second here. You're presuming that I am a good person interested in doing good works. I've got to tell you, left to my own devices, I'm a pretty selfish SOB, <laughs> and it's only by worshiping Jesus that I begin to gain any capacity to engage in something that might be good. Yeah. I mean, that's for me. That's the truth for me. Yeah. No, I think that's a good move. But I also think that well, was, the way I was trying to explain this for a lot of millennials, because they are often... Um, Okay, so I'm talking about millennials that are kind of grown up in conservative churches of Christ, because that's my context here. So you imagine, you know, a millennial grown up in kind of a conservative Christian context. And, and uh, you know, millennials kind of often feel like they're already good people because they vote better than their parents. You know, they, they've, they, they're already more tolerant. They're already welcoming, you know, and so they're already there. And so the question is then if they already kind of feel like I'm a good, tolerant person because of the way I'm so welcoming— mm-hmm. Then, then what's the appeal for Christianity past that, if they've already kind of yep. arrived at that point? I, I think Brian's point is spot on. I, I need to carry my cross. Like, there's things in me that would not be good if I was not a Christian. Mm-hmm. But I'm speaking, I'm talking to college students who yeah. already kind of feel a certain right. kind of moral self-satisfaction. All that to say is I think the move that has to be made isn't the moral move, you know, be a good person. It is about don't you feel an ache for something transcendent, sacred, mysterious that you've mm-hmm. bumped into your whole life and you only kind of dimly can articulate what that is. And that apologetics and evangelism is less about proposition, but more trying to evoke that ache in this generation because they feel it, but you give words to it, connected to the sacred, and all that connects to kind of the way you might use icons and prayer and that kind of to help them capture and name and own and see that sacred texture that yeah. they're living through. To connect to the transcendent that surrounds you right now. Right, right. And these things, to use Tom Wright's language, these are signposts, and these things get you there uh, for what's already been around you this entire time. And I, I think that's the language that works. I, I don't know, BZ, if that's your experience as well. You're shaking sure. your head. So y- yesterday, uh, Christine Kane, uh, who was on the podcast afterwards, uh, did a great job. Uh, she spoke at, uh, at one of the keynote sessions, actually, I guess right before yours. Mm-hmm. So I'm sorry I missed your... I, I mean, I've heard you talk a lot, but mm-hmm. I was talking to Christine during that. I, I, was, I, w- I talked about my mystical experiences, my dreams. Really? Yeah. Did you like you didn't mention like maybe one of those being the, like the podcast or something that we've done <laughs> dreaming together. about the podcast? Is it like a mystical experience? I, I didn't mention the podcast. No, <laughs> it was that's what you're asking. Like people kind of probably knew anyway. But when she was talking, she talked about like reaching the lost, reaching the lost, mm-hmm. and that's language that like some of them were. Uh, that's not often used by some circles, and I, I, I was sitting behind you. Both of you, Perry and BC, and I saw you. You're shaking your head. You're nodding. Christine is a longtime friend of y'all. I've right. known her for for decades. How do you hear that language of you know connecting to the lost and now this sort of for some that's okay. You're a sinner. You need Jesus, or you're going to go to hell when you die. That's what lost is. How do you think that language works now with this? Like if if you're trying to communicate faith is like transcendence all around you. How do we connect to it? Yeah, I don't use that language a lot because to me it's sort of collapsed into a cliche that carries with it assumed meanings that I no longer assume. I think it's the language that belongs to what I describe as heaven and hell minimalism, that the whole gospel is about getting people to go to heaven and not hell when they die. It's all post-mortem oriented, and I eventually just finally came to see that is not how the apostles 
preach the gospel as recorded in the book of Acts. And so I, I talk differently. I, I do see it more as a kind of belonging, belonging to this alternative society that is formed around Christ that is redemptive and that is capable of human flourishing, and I'm inviting people into that. Uh, but I, I completely agree with Richard that uh, isn't there a deep ache in the soul of human beings for that which is transcendent, that which is beyond, that which is mystical? Um, how, how do you preach that, though? It, because the heaven, hell, minimalism... I, 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 I just witness to it. I talk about some of my own mystical experiences, and I just talk about these things. Um, and I'm kind of unashamed to do that. You, you've been a pastor at your church y'all started for 36 years 36 yeah, yeah. over 36 years now okay uh started in 1981 which is when i was born so you know i got a connection <laughs> to your church how have you seen the reception change over 36 years as you've pro- like i don't say progressed but your message is altered and how you're communicating the good news oh man that's such a huge question um, cause, because so much has changed over time and some of it's the culture some of it is is the you know the people I'm speaking to but a lot of it's just me and my own journey um, but some things stay the same and that is this deep conviction that Christ is accessible that I can know Christ unlike I can know other historical figures I can, you know, I can, I could become an expert on Napoleon Bonaparte or whatever, and I could visit where he fought his battles, and I could read 20, 30 biographies, and, you know, I could know all about mm-hmm. Napoleon Bonaparte, but I don't, I, I'm not anticipating a mystical encounter mm-hmm. with, you know, the, the Bonaparte who fills all things everywhere with himself. I mean, to use that language sounds absurd, but I use that, that kind of language uh, without any embarrassment in talking about Christ. That there is a Christ who fills all things everywhere with himself uh, to whom I have access mm-hmm. through practices of prayer, contemplation. Mm-hmm. And I'm interested in witnessing to that as a possibility and then to the extent that I can, helping people begin to practice aspects of that. Uh, what's... Like baptism, how does that function in your church? Like if someone's going to be converted, baptism, it, look, it's in the process somewhere. I don't mean to, I don't want to get in a debate about baptism, but. No, I mean, I, I, think, I think we would have a hard time getting into a debate about baptism because I'd probably agree with you. Um, I think that's a good move on your part. What, what, what happened? Okay. What, what happened, what happened in, in Christendom, though, was what do you do when you end up with a baptized continent? How do you now appeal for them somehow to live into their faith? And that's where revivalism comes from. And then as you track the trajectory of revivalism, eventually uh, beginning more or less with Charles Finney and then coming into American uh, Billy Graham type evangelism, then the altar call becomes the replacement for baptism. Except I don't think we have the I don't think we have the right to do that. Yeah. So we, we we unabashedly use language. We will say that baptism is the formal uh, induction right into the body of Christ. Do you have like a mystical take on baptism? As- I have a mystical take on everything. I'm, I'm sacramental. Point. I mean, I well, I I'm, I teach mystical. real presence in in Eucharist. Paul says the, the cup of blessing which we bless is our 
koinonia, our participation, our sharing, our fellowship in the blood of Christ. The bread which we break is our participation in the body of Christ. Now, what I say about that is I say um, this is a mystery that we confess. Christianity is a confession, not an explanation. Baptism is a mystery? It's all, yeah, all of these are mysterious. uh, I mean, if we use the word sacrament, the word mystery is implied somewhere in that. Yeah. So that that Christianity is a confession. We will explain what we can. Right, let, me, let me back up. I would say it this way. Christianity is a confession, not an explanation. We will explain what we can. That's good. But we c- will always confess more than we can explain. That's good. Okay. And I think one of the things, as I'm hearing Brian talk about that, is, is that what, you're, what he's doing, is it sounds like to me to describe it, is he's enchanting the entire worship experience. And I think what yes. happens with lots of churches is... Um, there isn't enchanting of anything. There's there's a, a really really good praise band, but nothing's mystical. It's emotional, but not mystical. Or it's practical. And and I hate it when they when they, when they ask me to teach a practical sermon or make it practical. I hate that. Yeah. Well, can you differentiate mystical and emotional? Well, I mean, they they go together. I'm not saying, but but I think what instead of so we're trying to we're talking about trying to create an encounter with the sacred, and it seems like the only imaginative space we have for creating that is a very powerful uh worship experience you know like so and that's the only lever we're pulling but you're hearing brian pulling other levers during he's talking about his own mystical experiences in his sermons he's talking about as we go to the table that's a mystery like like the whole thing is a mystery it's the whole thing is has a sacred texture instead of like here's a really energizing encounter with the sacred will generally Produce an emotion, yeah, but it's a cheap shortcut to say, okay, we'll just go for the emotion, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, and you also don't train your people. So that, and, and that's the other thing is there's a spiritual formation aspect to that. If you're just always associating the spirit with adrenaline, right? Then, then that's when people, when they're quiet or they're having a, a, a contemplative moment, they can't name that as the presence of God because we've trained them up since they were little bitty. To, to associate God with being awesome and on and all that kind of thing. And so we're doing a disservice to them because of the only hermeneutic we give them is when you're excited and hopping up and down, that's the spirit. That's the spirit. Yeah. Okay. So, Beck, you've got your students you're talking to. So mm-hmm. These are millennials and the generation after that, whatever that's called, right? Aren't they? What do they call it after millennials? You're a psychologist. I don't know. Wh- that's sociology. <laughs> Anyway, whatever. <laughs> whatever. I you, call them kids, but go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Easy, let me tell you something. My dad is retiring. He no longer works w- with Richard as of like a couple days. So this is the last podcast that I actually have to be nice to him. <laughs> so the contract is up, so the gloves come off next time. I'm just warning you. That's what's going to happen. I'm just saying your dad would like to do some adjunct work. So oh, okay, oh, okay, <laughs> okay. We'll talk about your Johnny Cash book then. Okay, so you have the the, the students that you're working with, right. the kids. Mm-hmm. You have the fellows in white. At the prison, and then you have your readers, your blog, and your books. As as you like, try to get this mystical picture out there. The receptivity of this sort of like sacramental vision and experience that you have of Christianity. Do you see it being received different in kind of the different like audiences that you have? Like the fellows. Oh yeah, I think so. I mean, I so the the guys out of the prison are really charismatic. I mean, so so they're mm-hmm. so they're already kind of there as far as experiencing God. And so for them, I'm in a posture of, of, of yes. And, and mm-hmm. I'm owning, I'm, I'm accepting everything that they're telling me. That's not to say that they, 
I don't see some of those issues that always come along with charismatic and Pentecostal spiritualities. And I try to push back a little bit on some of that stuff. Because one of the things that's the temptation out there is that kind of, I get a word from God, yeah. and and, and uh, it's suspiciously very close to their own personal word. And, and so you, I do some, I do try to disentangle them from that. So, but I don't deconstruct it much. The, the students, uh, you know, they're all over the place, and so is the church. I, and one of the things I, I like to talk about with churches is I think this enchanted, disenchanted divide is one of the least talked about divides in churches. We talk about race, we talk about class, we talk about politics. But very often, in my church, in my Bible class, I got people on one side that the Spirit is moving, and they believe in miracles, and they're very mystical, and then the other group is skeptical, barely holding on to faith, they don't know if they believe in any of it. And often those two groups in the church find each other very weird and foreign. You yeah. know, the skeptics look at the enchanted people as borderline crazy, and the other one, and the enchanted group looks at the other ones as barely Christian or agnostic, yeah. and they don't talk a whole lot. And I think that's a struggle for you guys as pastors, is when you guys, I, I don't know, when you stand in a pulpit, which I don't do a lot of, the diversity that you're looking out at from the, pol- the, from the political that spectrum. That is so true. And and the, the the you got the agnostic or the deconstructed person and the one that just believes they have the gift of faith and how do you preach a message that you know I, I guess you just have to put somebody on hold and just kind of say you're going to be on hold because today's message is kind of for this person I'll get to you next week I don't know how y'all do it but BZ how would you answer that <laughs> I don't know I I don't know how to say how I do it I think I do and I think it's more intuiting it in the moment. And just keeping in mind who you're talking to. And so, for example, I have a ton of people who listen to my sermons on podcasts. And when I get up to preach on Sunday morning, I forget all about them. I don't think about I am not preaching to a podcast audience. I'm preaching to the people that are actually present, incarnational in those pews that are... Um, That's not, the right move. I mean, well, let me yeah. ask you guys this, just because you know I'm not a pastor. Have you guys ever been interrupted by a face? You're like on a trajectory, and you see somebody, and you stop and take care of business right there. Like, 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 like you're, you're looking at one of your parishioners. You're, you're, you're talking, you're, you're doing something, and you look at some, yeah. While in the moment, you're you're you moving. Well, I, I once was preaching a sermon. I was about to tell a story about Janine Reese, and lo and behold, one of my professors <laughs> in college. Yes, and lo and behold, she turns out she's in the pew. And I'm like. Well, I can't tell yeah. the story now, but you're thinking on a more substantial level. I'm thinking like like you know their story. They're going through a divorce, oh, yeah. or they're they've I, just lost somebody, okay. and you're and, you're, this is, and you realize just, that the spirit moves you in the moment to kind of stop what you're doing and to take a different tack, and kind of take a time out and address. Let that. me tell Do you, you guys my, get interrupted by this, that. I'm gonna, I'm literally sitting up in my. This is my favorite story that I've had. Okay, and I think I can tell it without like breaking confidence. I wrote a sermon. We're just going to leave this very ambiguous. I wrote a sermon because I heard one of my parishioners talk about how one of their family members acted. And I felt like the way that they were acting, despite their name Christian, they were anything but Christ-like in the way that they were acting. And so I write this sermon months later, always thinking, or I preach this sermon months later, thinking about how this person acted. And I thought it is antithetical to the way of God as, like, to use the metaphor of God as Father. Like, this is the opposite. And I get up to preach that Sunday, which is months after. I hear the story months later. I write it. Months later, I'm preaching it, and the actual person who I wrote the sermon is in town. Like, he doesn't even live in the state, and he shows up. And I, like, Christine Kane talked about how in her sermon, like, the call and response practice, which we don't really have in ours, causes her to, like, stay at a two yesterday, where if the, like, 
it was like in a black church. She would have gone all the way to the 10. Like I went all the way to the 10 just because in that moment, I was like, this is like a gift from God right now. But I see that on a smaller level because I know the stories of people just like BZ. You know these stories. Perry, you know these stories. Uh, you know what's going on in someone's life. And you know, I know what grace looks like for you right now. And yeah, I definitely riff, riff that way. BZ, what do you think? Yeah, I, I don't know if it's as regular. I don't know that I often in the very moment am arrested by the presence of someone. But I try to write my sermons that way. I mean, I try to write my sermons different than I write my books. I write books kind of aimed at a very specific audience that will probably, to a certain extent, self-identify. Our church is, how do I describe it? It's a real church with the whole spectrum of political views, theological views. Mm -hmm. Um, Here's what I think we've achieved, though. And I was talking to somebody. Who was I talking about? I don't remember. Very recently. And they ask me, well, what would you say is the big change in your church? Because it isn't like everyone in my church shares the same political views, far from it. Mm-hmm. But, but without making it a project, but it's just something that happened over maybe 10 years, we have been able to create a culture of kindness. Mm-hmm. And kindness is important. It's valued. And so... Uh, you can have a Trump supporter, and you can have a far-left liberal Democrat sitting in the same pew, and we do. Uh, but what they understand is that more important than any of that is that we be kind to one another. Yeah. And that if your politics drives you into a place of unkindness toward those that you are sharing the communion table with, all of a sudden that's, that's taboo, and that can't be done. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not, I'm not writing sermons for an elite audience or for a very narrow genre, but for just about anybody that would live in the Midwestern town of St. Joseph, Missouri, that somehow could find something about Jesus they can latch on to and it would draw them into this journey. Mm-hmm. I think that's another thing that we're very similar, like our passion for the local church. Because I think a lot of deconstructing people walk away from the church. And, and the, trouble, the trouble with that, when you walk away from the local church, is that your imagination for how the world gets better just reduces to electoral politics. Yes. Like, that's the only... You make the, we all want to make the world better. It's a good impulse. But if you don't have an arena of action, arena of care, where you're practicing reconciliation and peace and carrying each other's burdens, where that's tangibly week in, week out, it's hard work to do that. Um, So if you lack the church, then the only thing that's going to come to mind to make the world better is winning the next election. And that just increases the polarization, and it it separates us into the good guys and the bad guys. And and so so I I, I think the, the... Coming back to the local church is an important thing mm-hmm. for people who have gone on that journey because I, I don't know where else the action is going to play out um, to, yeah. to, to mend the world. Yeah. Okay, Perry, I heard that uh, BZ has a tendency where he leaves church like an hour before you, and you're up there doing pastoral work for an hour after him. Well, yeah, that, yeah, it's, it's true. I mean... I, I am a bit of an introvert, but when I get done preaching, I immediately go to the lobby, and I'm there for like a half an hour, shaking hands, talking to people, praying, and, and, I'm, and I finally think, all right, I've done well. 
I can't do any more. I've got to go home. And so I get home. If it's football season, it's like the third quarter before Perry gets home, and I always end up feeling guilty. It's like, <laughs> she's been a pastor for an hour longer than I have on this uh, whatever. And Janet, she's... Oh, we're, yeah, we're always the last people to leave church. See, you know? I'm not the last person. Yeah, yeah we're, we're always... But we're Perry very, is the last you know? person. But I, I've written about that, that, that so much of life in a church, I think there's a theology of lingering in the yeah. lobby. Because I really do think when people who come and then leave, I don't know if they really experience church, but my sense is the people that are de- most deeply committed to the church and really getting yeah. those, I really think there needs to be a theology of that lobby because uh, that's where church really starts mingling. Yeah, yeah, I, I like that. And that is where my ministry really begins. Yeah. And that's, that's who I'm called to be and what I'm called to do. So I'm out there and things happen. Things happen in the spirit. Um, people are touched, and um, it's, it's just it just me being who I am and doing what I'm called to do. But going back to what we were talking about earlier, the, the service, I think that the sacramental qualities of the service, namely the fact that we end our service coming to the communion table, is there's this understanding that has made its way into the hearts of the people that. This is what it's for. And that communion table unites us. No matter what differences we have, the communion table unites us. So I would say that that is the most important thing that we do on a Sunday morning. We went a long time, a long time discussing and arguing in, uh, among our staff, you know, should we do this? We all wanted to make this move, but, oh, the people might not like it. You know, to, to, to move to weekly communion. Oh, yeah. It was something that we just did, like, quarterly, every once in a while. Okay, and then we went to monthly. But uh, when we finally did it, the grace that flowed was incredible. And it's made such a difference to do that. Yeah. And it really is the high point of the of the whole service, mm-hmm. I you know I've heard churches you know the Church of Christ is a weekly communion tradition and and I've I've gone around talking about Eucharist is a practice of hospitality and every church that I've heard that does has made the move to go weekly has always reported that exact story just just a the grace that comes for every week the people gathering around that well, table. What is the church without the Eucharist? I mean everything. I mean you you can go to a, a concert and hear music you can you can go to a lecture hall and hear somebody teach you know all of those things there that is to come to a table and eat a, some bread and partake of some wine and call it the body and blood of Jesus nobody else does anything like that yeah. that's part of our absolute sacred uniqueness mm-hmm. i mean say, it's what makes the it what makes wor- a worship service christological yeah right that's that's what makes the worship that's what's going to center christ is the table so you know the worship songs can but they're often toward the father mm-hmm. the sermon can be whatever the sermon is going to be but the table is always going to bring you back to the crucified lord that in that i don't know how yeah why yeah, would you and, skip and that and the table isn't practical it's not pragmatic yeah. It's mysterious. It's strange. It's a little bit odd. Mm-hmm. Now, I would say it's beautiful and sacred, but I understand that it also will be viewed as odd. 
Okay, you're talking to Church of Christ people. We've done this every week for as long as we're we good at odd. Yeah, we're, right. we're good. Perry, you said <laughs> both of you've used the language of actually coming to the table. Physically, are you getting up coming to the front? Is that how that yeah, works? Yeah, we, we don't hand it out in little tiny cups. Because? Because that reinforces individualism. And we want the idea of a cup. Plus, I want all five senses involved. So if you're going to encounter the Eucharist, yes, you can see it. You can smell it, you can touch it, you can taste it, but we want hearing involved, so we want you to hear someone saying, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. So now all five senses are involved in this sacramental act. And I also think the advantage of coming up forward is the, the surprising juxtaposition of bodies and stories. That as you see people in line or the people that are giving the words, like you find there are moments where people will tell that these two people were standing in line together or these two people faced each other. You, you don't create that if you're just sitting by yourself. Mm-hmm. But when you get up and move around a room, this, God will do, will put people in spaces where they will be broken by just who they encountered that Sunday. Um, yeah. Where they find themselves just next to their best friend and they're going forward to take the table and they know that they're going through a horrible thing. And there's just something profound in ministering to kind of walk with that person forward and, and, yeah, I think and of it, pastor them. I think of it as an altar call, the altar call. People say, well, do you have an altar call? In your church, I said yes every Sunday, and we actually have an altar and we have something on it. <laughs> yeah. What do you, Perry has something to say. And everyone gets to come. Everyone yeah. gets to come. I just remember, um, you know, being in church for so many years, and you know, being particularly moved by the Spirit, and getting to the end of the service and wanting to respond in some way, but eh, I'm already saved. Yeah. I did that. Oh, I used up my one time <laughs> a long time ago. But now I get to respond. And so I come to the table and I receive what Jesus has for me. And I just, I have that sense of every time something significant happens. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. BZ has more. Now, well, you know, we're not naive. We understand that this is a area of controversy within the church. Uh, but I'm willing to kind of engage in the debate. <laughs> Uh, I understand it's a break from what the early church did. I understand that, but I think... What, what do you mean by I, that? Open communion Open communion. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I understand the early church, and I think they had their reasons for not practicing that. Uh, my defense is we appeal to the table practice of Jesus and his radical hospitality. And my invitation every Sunday morning is, this is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love him and for those who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often and you who have not been here long. You who have tried to follow and you who have failed, come. Because it is the Lord who invites you. It is His will that those who want Him should meet Him here. Amen. Amen. Mm -hmm. All right, well, I'm ready for dinner now. (laughs) I mean, it's time for us to go to the table. Uh, table. Josh Grace, (laughs) Colin Packer, do you have anything you want to add? You guys think, Colin? Grateful <laughs> Good. All right. Perry, thank you for coming on the podcast for the first time. Richard, BZ, pleasure as always. Sure. It's thank always you. a pleasure. Thanks for checking out right. Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned. <laughs>